He who fights with monsters should be careful, lest he thereby become a monster. And if he thou gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the first uh, inaugural, one might say, episode of the actual Classic Life podcast. Last week, we did an overture of what you guys can expect, and we told, and I told you what, um, what were the reasons I wanted to change, what I felt like I wanted to combat this uh, sense of depression that is kind of everywhere, a, a lot of issues that I have found with young people. And today I thought that I would talk about one of the problems, one of the things at least that I have identified as a problem with this uh, modern world. Um, and for me, that's two things. Uh, cynicism and nihilism, I think, are, are very large issues with the world, particularly nihilism, although we can talk a little bit about cynicism. But as, as we talk about nihilism, one of the things I want to do is kind of make that applicable to reality through biographies of different famous characters. And truly, there is, there is no one um, more famous for being a nihilist, I would say. Maybe there are. But nihilism and Nietzsche kind of go hand in hand. And I've talked about Nietzsche before on this podcast, um, he is a rather notorious figure in history, and he's one that has derived um, explosive responses from a variety of different people. And I've actually talked about Nietzsche before on the podcast. I've talked about him in the episode that I entitled The Murderer of Murderers. And I can't say that my opinion on Nietzsche has changed a whole lot. It's, it's changed, I'd say, a little bit. But I still think he's wrong. But I have, I've read more of Nietzsche, and I've studied more of Nietzsche, and I've learned about his life since that last episode. And therefore, I feel as though it's incumbent upon me to readdress this character and to readdress what I think about him. Um, and I think it's impossible that, or I think it's important, not impossible, I think it's important that we do read Nietzsche and learn about Nietzsche because he asks good questions. And, and I'll read some of um, his responses, and I'm actually... Pardon me for being kind of distracted because I'm, I'm looking up a copy of his book, Beyond Good and Evil, which I've been reading and listening to. And there's a part of it that actually b right before I started this uh, that I was listening to and I want to pull it up because I think it's important that we talk about it. So I'm trying to find it here. Um, but we'll get to that later. First off, um, what is nihilism what is cynicism well nihilism 
is in essence the belief in nothingness. The, the uh, so uh, nihilism uh, literally means the ideology of nothing. Now, one of the interesting things that one might immediately notice about that is how can you have an ideology about nothing? Because by nature of the ideology, you actually do believe in something. You believe in that ideology. And that's kind of one of the right off of that issues with nihilism is it's, it's almost impossible to actually be nihilistic, but one can make a great effort to, to do so. Um, but nihilism, I could say that's one way to think about it is the ideology of nothingness. But it, it in a lot of ways, uh, a more simple is just the kind of, it, it's not the same as pessimism. But because pessimism is belief that essentially that everything is bad, it's the glass is half empty. Um, and then optimism is, of course, the glass is half full. Realism is that it's kind of neither. Cynicism is, well, is that even water? It might be poison. Or then you have nihilism, which says, in essence, there is no cup. There is nothing. The cup is neither empty nor full. And nihilism is one of the swans of Nietzsche's ideas, I would say. Nietzsche had these thoughts, these, these um, I, I, you can't even necessarily call them revelations, he had these ideas, these concepts, that there is kind of nothing, that we make the world what it is. And his ideas were the foreground of postmodernism. They were the foreground of deconstructionism. They were the foreground of nihilism. And of course, there were nihilists before, just as there were cynics before, but he kind of gave rise and gave birth to a new kind. Um, but why, the question can be asked, why are there so many nihilists these days? Why is this such a popular thing? And we'll discuss that after we get to his, um, his philosophies, and, and we'll be reading some Nietzsche today. But... One of the things that is interesting to me is, is, is simply, and I've already said this, is simply the amount of nihilists there are. I can give you an example of um, a class that I was in. So I was in a class just a couple of days ago, and it, it was a French class. So we were learning how to say certain words, and somehow somebody said a word that was the incorrect word, and... They said something that was accordance in accordance with, like, I went to get drunk or something like that. And then, and, and we were also talking about, like, being happy or being sad and, like, learning how to say that. And then there's this girl behind me. And I do believe it is important to note that this girl uh, decided that she wanted to be a man now. And, but it very obviously very obviously a girl, but goes by uh, a male name and wants to be called a him. And so then the professor was making a joke about, oh, how can you go and you can get drunk on a Friday night and then wake up the next morning and be sad all of Saturday just to do it again next week. And this girl behind me, this uh, young lady, she said she cackled and kind of said to herself, but loud enough that just enough people could hear but not really make a comment about. She said, me every week going to get drunk 
on a Friday night when classes let out, and then you spend all day Saturday alone and by yourself. And that's something to laugh about and, and say, <laughs> me every week. Is that inherently nihilistic? No, not necessarily. But when that is repeat habit, you really aren't seeking much else to live for. You can say that, oh, well, I'm just depressed right now, but if you're not seeking to get better, at what point do you believe that, well, there is nothing besides this? Your actions have to lay out a path towards your betterment. And if you don't, then at what point do you just believe it's not possible? And so for a lot of people, there's the kind of the split, this belief of there is nothing better, like genuinely believing, like genuinely being nihilists and genuinely thinking that there is nothing to attain to, there is no great in inherent truth. Or there's people who do that by default, simply by not trying to improve themselves, simply by not seeking out the truth, by just simply existing as you are, as this inordinate blob of nothingness, not seeking or having desires that are for your edification, just simply seeking desires for desire's sake, that is also kind of by default a form of nihilism because you're not seeking and trying to attain to what is true and beautiful. And that's interesting because Nietzsche uses words like true and beautiful often in his writing, especially in Beyond Good and Evil stating in some cases that there is no such thing as the true and the beautiful. Those are words that I've myself been saying a lot recently, seeking after, desiring, attaining to what is true and what is beautiful. Because in my belief, what is beautiful is true and what is true is beautiful, and that is all you need to know. That's what John Keats says. But there comes a point when, when you're not seeking those, you kind of simply forget about the fact that they exist. And, it, and for humans, it really is out of sight, out of mind. When you're not focusing on those things, they don't exist. They, they, are, they are not part of reality if I'm not paying attention to them. And that's one of the problems, is these people live for nothing but self-gratification. They are, in fact, materialists. And that is the biggest problem. I maintain that unbridled materialism will lead to nihilism and cynicism by default. And, and we'll get to why. The, the ideas themselves are dangerous. And we've talked about nihilism. What is cynicism? Cynicism is the belief that everything is of selfish motivation. All mankind. People are not capable of genuine acts of love and compassion. Everyone is motivated by their own self-interest. And you hear that in ways of, of young people saying things like, oh, well, why bother doing this? Or I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard young people saying, well, at this point, I'm pretty much just living off of spite. And that's a very cynical statement. Now, cynicism as a philosophy is dangerous, but being cynical is not necessarily because you don't want to be duped, and I don't want to be duped, and I would consider myself somewhat cynical. In fact, I'm taking a, a class that's related to po politics, and the professor made a statement, I made a reply that was somewhat joke, but mostly not, 
And he looked at me and laughed, and he said, oh, you're a cynical one, aren't you? Or actually, because I've made comments like that before, he goes, he looks at me and he says, oh, you really are cynical. And yeah, I am a cynical individual, but I am not a cynic. There's a big difference. Because cynicism also has to deny any evidence of the transcendent as well. Because it has to believe that there is no capability of someone becoming or attaining to goodness. And that's not true. People are capable of it. That's, in fact, the very hope and faith that we live for. The belief that we can, at some point, become better than we are currently and not be motivated by our own selfish reasons and and ideas and concepts. A cynic is incapable of doing that because, once again... They are also materialists. They believe in nothing other than the collision of atoms and neutrons and the flowing of chemicals in our brains to create sensations. And that's an extremely dangerous and problematic and troublesome idea to believe in because simply it's not true. It's just simply not. There is truth and beauty, and we see that literally everywhere. I I forget what verse it's in. Let me see if I can find it. Um, I won't be able to. One of Paul's letters that he wrote talks about um, the fact that God has left clues for us all throughout the universe for us to find and for us to come to know his nature. God has, in fact, left these concepts, he's left these ideas, he's left these things all around the world that we might find and know about him. And I maintain that these are the beautiful things in life. The, the beauty of the stars, the beauty of the sunset, the beauty of good, true art, the beauty of a wonderful story, of a wonderful movie, of beautiful poetry, of amazing paintings, of gorgeous architecture. All, all of these things, they point back to God because God is the inspiration of creativity. God is a creative God. And these are the things that as will ultimately help us find a cure for nihilism. But let's, let's look at some of, of Nietzsche's problems. Oh, well, here's... Before we figure out how to help, we must figure out why. Why this happens is the key to solving it. And there is famously sung, Because we're living in a material world and I am a material girl. You know that we are living in a material world, and I am a material girl. That is literally the mantra of generation after generation. It is what everybody believes. There is nothing other than what I want, what I desire. We've talked about this with Epicureanism as well, that it's just, well, live your best life. You do you. Whatever makes you happy, whatever floats your boat. I I mean, how many times have I heard, uh, well... Um, I need self-care. I, and, and that's not wrong inherently. People do need to take care of themselves. But the problem is, I, I had this debate with somebody, um, TikTok is not self-care. I had this debate with somebody that she goes, oh yeah, self-care for me is just sitting down at 11 o'clock at night after a long day, just got back from the bars or whatever, and just scrolling through TikTok for an hour. That's self-care. That's self-love. No, it's not. 
you will never convince me that scrolling mindlessly through TikTok is self-care. That is self-avoidance. There's a quote by um, Dennis Prager in a great video that he just did that the, the human mind is essentially, I'm paraphrasing or quoting, probably butchering it, but the human mind is excellent at um, tricking itself. The, the human mind is, is phenomenal at deceiving itself about itself. And that's so true. Our minds are dangerous and powerful weapons that can be used for us and for the kingdom of God or against us and against the kingdom of God. And very often we turn our own minds against ourselves. And that's the opening quote that I read, which is a, qu a quote by Nietzsche. That's actually true. When you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss will stare back into you. But what is totally forgotten and attempted to be eradicated in some ways is the abyss has eyes and it has teeth and it has horns and it's often portrayed as red with a pitchfork. There is no such thing as an abyss of nothingness. That's the, that's the fundamental presupposition that the nihilists have that is wrong. That's what the problem with the materialists is that they're wrong, is that there is other things in the world. There is no abyss of nothingness. In many instances in the Bible, it's called the dragon or the serpent or the snake or Satan or Lucifer. There is no abyss. When you stare into the abyss, it stares back at you. It is a roaring lion that wants you to ask these questions that Nietzsche asks. Let's read some Nietzsche. I'll primarily be reading from Beyond Good and Evil, which was um, one of his last works. It's often one of his most... Well, no, thus spoke Zathrustra uh, was also the gay science, all of these... But it's one of his more concise books, I would say, and where he talks about a lot of different things. This is uh, from... The way that it's written is it's just like a series of consecutive thoughts that aren't necessarily cohesive or put together. They kind of are. But this is uh, 13. Psychologists should bethink themselves before putting down the instinct of self-preservation as the cardinal instinct of an organic being. A living thing seeks, above all, to discharge its strength. Life itself is will to power. Self-preservation is only one of the indirect and most frequent results thereof. In short, here, as everywhere else, let us beware of superfluous teleological principles one of which is the instinct of self-preservation. It is thus, in effect, that method ordains which must be essentially economy of principles. For his book, Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche claims that everyone, above everything else, desires power. And the desire to preserve oneself is just a mechanism to arrive to power. There is no truth. There is nothing. He calls Christianity the Platonism of the masses, which is a sim very similar thing to what the fact that um, Marx says that 
Christianity is the opium of the masses. Platonism believes essentially in, in the fa famous painting by Raphael, I believe, painted it of Plato pointing up and uh, Aristotle pointing out. What's Plato is pointing to is is um, truth. It is the I just lost the forms. The the thing that we should attain to is up, and we should seek towards it. There is an inherent truth and reality to nature, and we should attain towards it. It is fundamental. It cannot be changed. But Nietzsche inherently declines that. He inherently says that is not true. He asks, uh, closer to the beginning of it, of this um, beyond good and evil. Let me see if I'll just find it. Um, I'll find it here. So, this is the preface. Supposing that truth is a woman, what then? Is there not ground for suspecting that all philosophers, insofar as they have been dogmatists, have failed to understand women, and that the terrible seriousness and clumsy importunity with which they have usually paid their addresses to truth have been unskilled and unseemly methods for winning a woman? Certainly she has never allowed herself to be won, and at every point and at and at present every kind of dogma stands with sad and discouraged mien, if indeed it stands at all, for there are scoffers who maintain that it has fallen and that all dogma lies on the ground, nay more than it has at than it is at its last gasp. But to speak seriously, what good grounds are hoping that all dogmatizing in philosophy, whatever solemn, whatever conclusive and decided airs, it has assumed that we have been noble pluralism and tyrannism, and probably the time is at hand when it will want be once and again understood. And then later on he says, here we go, this is essentially he's saying that Truth has evaded us, and I will give you truth, is what he's going to go on to say. The will to truth, this is chapter one, Prejudices of Philosophers, number one. The will to truth, which is to tempt us to many a hazardous enterprise, the famous truthfulness of which all philosophers have hitherto spoken with respect, what questions has this will to truth not laid before us? What strange, perplexing, questionable questions... It is already a long story, yet it seems as if it were hardly commenced. It is any wonder if we at last grow distrustful, lose patience, and turn impatiently away, that this sphinx teaches us at last to question ourselves. Who is it really that puts the question to us here? What really is this will to truth in us? In fact, we made a long halt at the question as to the origin of this will, until we came to an absolute standstill before at yet more fundamental question, we inquired about the value of this will. Granted that we want the truth, why not rather untruth and uncertainty, even ignorance? The problem of the value of truth presented itself before us, or was it we who presented ourselves before the problem? Which of us is the Oedipus here? Which the Sphinx? It would seem to be a rendezvous of questions and note of interrogation. So, why do we even want to know truth? This is what I was talking about earlier. This is not a bad question. Why do we want to know truth? Well, to, to be better, to live better, to attain 
higher stands of greatness to become a a to not excuse ourselves from the journey towards perfection as i talked about before even though we know we will not attain perfection that, that does not excuse us from the journey towards it and this is one of the fundamental things that nietzsche doesn't understand because he rejects god he was actually in seminary school G- nietzsche was in some ways a genius he was a brilliant brilliant man well, I, I have some notes on his biography here that we'll get to at some point, but he wasn't, he wasn't a fool. He was not a dumb man. He was a misguided man and a sad man. Number 43. Will they now be friends of truth, these coming philosophers? Very probably. For all philosophers hitherto have loved their truths, but assuredly they will not be dogmatists. It must be contrary to their pride and also contrary to their taste that their truth should still be truth for everyone. That which has hitherto been the secret wish and ultimate purpose of all dogmatic efforts. My opinion is my opinion. Another person has not easily a right to it. That's a very important thing right there. My opinion is mine. My truth is my truth and it is nobody else's. Such a philosopher of the future will say, perhaps, one must renounce the bad taste of wishing to agree with many people. Good is no longer good when one's neighbor takes it into his mouth. And how could there be a, quote, common good? The expression contradicts itself. That which can be common is always of small value. In the end, things must be as they are and have always been. The great things remain for the great and the abysses for the profound, the delicacies and thrills for the refined, and to sum up shortly, everything rare for the rare. There is no such thing as moral phenomena, but only a moral interpretation of phenomena, says Nietzsche in 108. And that's the problem with Nietzsche right there. Everything, everything is up to interpretation. There is no such thing as the forms, as Plato has it, as Aristotle puts it. There is no ideal to attain to. There is only the interpretation of what we can see in reality. One of the prop, one of the things that um, postmodernists say, and I've read this before, is postmodernism is the idea or the disdaining of the idea of a meta narrative, the belief that there is no meta narrative. What is a meta narrative? An underlying story that makes cohesive the very reality as we see it. An underlying journey that everybody has to go on. The true story. That's what the meta-narrative is. And the postmodernist doesn't believe in that story. Nietzsche wrote these in the late 1800s. Postmodern theory, as I chronicled it, started in the 1960s, or a little bit before that, the 1900s. And they took their inspiration from something like there is no such thing as a moral phenomena, but only a moral interpretation of phenomena. Now, why did I, add, why did I say that these are good questions? Well, they, they are because they're real questions. They're, why do we seek goodness? Why do we seek truth? What is the reason for that? Well, here's the thing. 
there is no reason for that if you don't believe in God. And that's why they're good questions with bad answers. Because you don't believe in the answer. We have an answer to these questions. Nietzsche's writings are essentially the book of Job without the first two chapters. Or the last chapter of God answering Job. They're the book of Ecclesiastes without chapter 12, in which he gives you the answer. Or in chapter 9, when he says that, Eat your, eat your, eat honey because it tastes good. Drink your wine. Love your woman because God has already approved of your works. Nietzsche's the problem with Nietzsche's conclusions here is he doesn't believe in the answer, so he has to come to the conclusion that he comes to that life itself is will to power, and he's attributed the quote that is whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger, but that quote originates from the Bible, really. Nietzsche believed that suffering was the greatest thing because to suffer is to gain strength and, and all, of, all of these. He was a boastful, arrogant individual. And he had this philosophy of the greater you suffer, the greater your life is. And, and that's not true if you are not suffering for something. And that's the problem. Nietzsche turned suffering into a virtue in and of itself. And suffering is not a virtue in and of itself. Suffering for the cause of somebody else is good. But he says, whenever goodness cannot come from another person's mouth, it has to come from mine own. So the very fact that he is suffering for the sake of suffering and he believes that this has made him great is foolishness. So he ended the first discourse of his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is also called the prologue. Um, and he, he ended it with, with this. For at this point, the shouting and the mirth of the multitude interrupted him. Give us this last man, O Zarathustra, they called out. Make us into these last men. Then we will make thee a present of the Superman. And all the people exulted and smacked their lips. Zarathustra, however, turned sad and said to his art and said to his heart, They understood me not. I am not the mouth for these ears. Nietzsche believed that there were two things. There was the slave mentality and the the overmensch mentality, the Superman mentality, or um, what do you call it? There's the first man or the last man, or the Superman or the last man, I think, some along those lines. And the last man is Christians. He called the Christians the mentality of the last man, the, 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 the mentality that suffering for others is a good thing. That this, there is this will to power, right? And the Superman, the overmensch, will attain that will to power by essentially getting beyond good and evil. That's what we have to do. That is the solution. That once we get past this beyond good and evil, what is currently understood to be moral to do, when we do that, we will become supermen. We will become the next generation of humans. But there's a huge problem with that. Because you can't get past good and evil because... Morality is not, it's not necessarily a spectrum. 
It's not something that you can just switch from one to another. Morality is not relative. It is what it is. What is true is true, and there is no getting around that. But so this Christian mentality of suffering on behalf of others, he said, is the slave mentality. It's the last men. Supermen are the one who will be able to get past it. He says in, I believe, the gay science, um, which gay is happy science, the, the happy science or the happy living or whatever, there's lots of kind of interpretations of it, but that's the one where this man comes out and says, God is dead and we have killed him. We are the murderer of all murderers. Must we ourselves, and it goes on, and there will never be enough water to wash away the blood of this deed. So he saw it as a bad thing, is what I'm trying to say. But he saw it as that nonetheless. But then, so after that, he says, Must we ourselves not become gods simply to become worthy of this act? Must we not get beyond good and evil? Must we not become the overmensch and shed off this? He kind of saw it as like a false humility of saying that um, God is dead and, and trying to be these nice individuals who believe in this common good. That's going to be the death of our reality. But the question is, why? Why is that um, his solution? What is? How did he come to these conclusions, I guess, is the question. How did he begin to conclude that life is suffering and this will to power? And well, when we look at his life, we see a, a very sad thing. We see somebody who did not live a good life. We see somebody who failed over and over and over again. He didn't live up to his expectations. He didn't, he didn't come to fruition in what he thought that he was capable of. A poor and broken man is who Nietzsche was, by almost every metric. A poor and broken human being, failing with his writings, failing with his love affairs, failing with his health. Nietzsche was born to a, a pastor, a, a preacher, and um, who died not long after his birth. He was probably 10 or 12, probably. His mother would end up dying later, and all he had was his sister. But he went to seminary school, and then when he began to see this reality, he went to war. And when he went to war, he quickly um, became sick and it, it's from a couple of things, not the least of which, which was syphilis when he was visiting brothels. Um, his health failed him, but he was smart. There's no doubt about it. He was an intelligent individual who even got a professorship at um, uh, a college, a rather prestigious college. Um, and before even finishing his uh, doctoral classes. He didn't finish it. He ended up finishing it eventually and, and published it. So he got his PhD. He was a smart cookie. And when he was at this um, uh, college, being a professor, he came into the clutches or came into the sphere of a Richard Wagner, who was famous for, of course, the ring cycles. Uh, he was a, a phenomenal playwright and uh, opera composer and musician. He was... By all rights, a brilliant man. He's also a very bad man as well. And Nietzsche fell desperately in love with v Richard Wagner's wife. When Nietzsche went mad, uh, he wrote a, le a final love letter to Casima Wagner and 
professing her to be his wife already, and uh, he would call her Ariadne. Very ironic that one of the people whom he idolized was, from one of his favorite stories, the story of Theseus and Ariadne, but one of the people whom he idolized, inspired, one of the, the, the images that he venerated, one could put it this way, is Dionysus, the god of madness and revelry. And how did Nietzsche die? Insane. He died mad. I maintain, as I said in the episode who hath sent you, that these gods of old, they're not gone. They're disguised. But if you give them... If you give your attention over to them, they will give their attention back to you. As he himself said, Be careful if thy fight monsters, that, thy night, that thou not turn into a monster as well. And do not forget, when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. Well, he stared into the eyes of his favorite mythological story, Theseus and Ariadne. He was going to save Ariadne from the monster, bring her into the light. He was going to save her from Wagner. But she rejected him. He fell in love with another woman shortly after, but did not have the courage, the overmensch that he was, the superman that he was. He had not the courage to propose to this woman himself. So he had his friend propose to her on his behalf. He just was a coward to some extent. There's a famous picture of him after he got too sick to be a professor, he kind of became a journeying theologian philosopher, writing his stories and doing what he will. He was going to start a commune, uh, a communal institution of learning with another uh, intelligent friend of his and a woman who he proposed to twice and whom rejected him twice. And there's a photo of him with... This woman, I don't, I can't, obviously can't pull the picture up on here. I haven't figured out how to do that quite yet. But there's a famous f picture of the two men standing uh, there, they're in front of a horse cart. And the two men are standing holding where the bars would be attached to the horse. And they're, so they're holding it. And she is on the cart whipping them in the photo. And that's such an illustration of Nietzsche's life. He was in love with all these women and they just rejected him. Probably because he was a, a squeaking of a man who was so smart and brilliant. I wouldn't say brilliant. He was smart. Well, no, he was brilliant, but he was so brilliantly wrong, it's amazing. And it's, he's this smart man who all of his writings were rejected until he was until after he died, none of his, he wasn't, he, he couldn't maintain professorship because he had such failing health. He was always sick, always unwell. And he was rejected by, I mean, the rejection from a woman hits hard to men, um, especially one who thinks that he's so great. And so it, it's no wonder that towards the end of his days when he's coming up with his writings, I mean, one of the most pathetic things that he ever did is after Cosima kind of rejected him, and after he started, he began to have this hate for uh, Wagner. But yet, for one of Ariadne's, Ar Ariadne's or his Cosima's birthdays, or it, was, it might have been Wagner's, I forget, I apologize, he wrote a story praising Wagner and gave it to them as a gift. 
That's like the ultimate cuckold thing to do. You are in love with this woman, yet you still continue to worship the person who's kind of keeping her away from you. And so that's that's like the story of his life is failure after failure, failing to maintain his own standards of just if he should have just thrown off the shackles of convention and taken the woman for his own. I decide what is good to do and I decide what is bad to do because I have the greatest will to power. I am throwing off the shackles of morality. But no, he couldn't because he was a coward because he, he couldn't live to his own standards. All he could do was boast big words. He made a statement that I can write in a sentence what those can't, what the greatest philosophers in the world can't write in a book. Nay, what they can't even write at all. Yet it doesn't matter what you can write if you can't live by those standards. If you can't maintain and uphold the things you edify, it means nothing. I can write and I can boast about whatever I want to do. But if I can't actually even do it, then what does it matter at all? Nietzsche did nothing. He did nothing. He lived for nothing because he believed in nothing. Because he believed that we are nothing but the atoms colliding together. Of course, Darwin was coming to prominence a couple of years before Nietzsche. And that had to be of massive influence. Dostoevsky writes about it too. Dostoevsky and Nietzsche were two of the most similar people ever, but they came to such opposite conclusions. Because Dostoevsky realized at some point after he was kind of rescued out of the ideations of socialism, that God is real and truth and beauty exist, and that to love another is the greatest thing that you can do, and to die for another, and to suffer on another person's behalf. The story of the brothers Karamazov is the story of Alyosha, who takes on constantly the burdens of those around him. To live for truth is to live and take responsibility for responsibility for all the other people around you and to suffer on their behalfs for the goodness of mankind. And Nietzsche's ideations are the exact opposite. Will to power. There is no moral phenomenon, only moral interpretation of phenomenon. Inherently, I impose what I believe to be good on what is reality, and reality says nothing because it is nothing, because nothing created reality. That's one of the problems, once again, the the massive rhetorical knowledge of self-immolation of what is nihilism is it's a contradiction because to be a nihilist is to have an ideology about nothingness that says that there is nothing but there there is still this nihilistic thought and we see this because it's inherently a postmodern idea we see this everywhere okay even with the belief that there is no such thing as non-binary Okay, or there, there is such a thing as being non-binary. There are not just two genders. But that in and of itself creates a binary. There are those who are non-binary and those who are binary. These postmodern thoughts are irrational. They don't make sense any which way you cut them because they deny the fundaments of reality. That there is a, Plato was right, and that there are forms that we seek to strive towards. That's just simply the truth. Forms exist. Truth exists. And there's nothing we can do about it. No, it doesn't matter which way we cut it. And, and Nietzsche didn't like that. In fact, he loathed it because by the standards that are reality, he was a failure. So he decided, I will make up my own new standards. 
And in my standards of the world, it is he with the greatest will to power creates everything. He creates the morals. The more rare something is, the greater it is. And in some aspects, that is true. But in many, it's not. Because reality is reality. And the, the problem with the statement isn't what things that are rare have value. But there is still the fundament that is people know what is good and what is bad. Michael Knowles is famous for putting forward this question. Is it better to kick an old lady in the head or bake an old lady a pie? Or he says, give an old lady a pie or kick a baby in the head. And people are like, oh, like if you ask libertarians these questions who find their fundaments in postmodernism as well or these other postmodernists, they can't really give an answer to that because they don't, they don't believe in a common good. But there is a common good. And the answer is it is better to pick an old lady up high. But people will say, oh, I don't play these theoretical games because they don't want to answer the question. Because if you answer that question, it's speaking to a fundament of reality. That there is goodness and that there is evil and there is no getting beyond it. One of the big problems is there is a such thing as something that is transcendent. Platonism for the masses is Platonism for the masses because it's real. There is a common good. God has left an indelible mark on anything and everything. Everywhere we see testaments to the glory of God. And if you don't see it in nature, then you see it simply in the fact that there is laws of nature. That it is, in fact, better to give an old lady a pie and not kick a baby in the head. That in and of itself points to God. Because if there is nothing, then Nietzsche is right. If there is no chapter 12, of Ecclesiastes, if there is no chapters 1 and 2 and the end of Job, then Nietzsche is right. There is no moral phenomena. There is simply moral interpretation. But the problem is, is there is moral phenomena. And we see this how? History and history and history and civilization and civilization and civilization that has put people in jail that kick babies in heads, that kick babies in the head, that murder people, that steal, that thieve. The Hammurabi Code, the Ten Commandments, all of these things, they are an interpretation of what is good to do and making sure that people do it. Because there will be people that come and go, like Nietzsche, who say, these don't apply to me. I don't like it because it's not good for my pleasure. It is not good for me because it's harming me. It is stating that I am not as good as everybody else because I cannot maintain to these standards. The difference between Nietzsche and everybody else is Nietzsche was a small cuckold of a man that couldn't actually inflict himself upon another person. So instead he decided to write about it in silly journals to himself about how great of a man he is, about how Zathustra was a man before his time because the people couldn't stand for him. They couldn't stand the words they're saying, give us the last man, they say, and we will make you a present of the Superman. Ha, 
and before my time, said Zarathustra, and he was sad in his heart. Nietzsche embellished himself to his mind so much. He stared into the abyss for so long that it bit back at him. The god whom he so adored and worshipped, Dionysus, Bacchus, the god of revelry and madness, struck him with what it was he desired most. To be free of the constraints of reality, to live in your own mind, to do the same thing over and over again, to be insane, to be mad, to write to himself over and over again the ideas that he had, that he dwelt upon so much. That gift was granted to him. When you get beyond good and evil, you go insane because you have defied reality for so long that it defies you. And so he sat for the last 10 years of his life in a mental institution. A sad wreck of a man who wrote letters to himself, continuing to, calling himself the crucified. Because people couldn't stand for him. He compared himself to Jesus, a savior that was rejected. And it's a good thing that we, we rejected him too. Because his conclusions always lead to the same thing. Insanity. The other people who believe in what Nietzsche says, they commit crimes. And they go to jail or they go to prison. But the people who write philosophy, who come up with these books, they unfortunately impugn their ideas even more widely upon generations of people. And these young people are nihilistic and cynical. They believe that the people are going to stab them in the back, that people are inherently evil, or that there is nothing, nothing at all in the world to live for. And so why... Why live at all? Why be constrained by the so-so laws that are imposing themselves upon society, upon reality? Well, we're seeing the repercussions of that. Young people have an overwhelmingly large suicide rate. It is one of the leading causes in death in people 18 to 25. They're coming to the same conclusions as Nietzsche. If there is no truth, there is only will to power... But if I can't afflict my power onto other people, why should I even be here? There is no reason to live if there is nothing to live for. If there is no truth, then there is no beauty. Nothing is beautiful because everything is of your own accord. If there is nothing that is transcendent, if there is nothing, no goal to which to attain, everything is meaningless. If God has not approved our works then everything is vanity of vanities. And that's the problem with Nietzsche's ideas, is the fundamental concept of materialism, that there is nothing, is wrong. And you have to judge it by its own fruits. What did it do to Nietzsche? This realize, if you come to the realization that nothing exists in the world, then you get madness, you get insanity. It doesn't always manifest itself so starkly in the fact that Nietzsche literally died insane, a rambling madman. One of the things that was interesting, this is where we'll end it today, is he wrote a letter to a friend. And in this letter he said, one, one civil conversation, one nice, empathetic, sympathetic conversation with the person derails my whole philosophy. One conversation of somebody that can actually sit down and state 
and say, I'm sorry for what's happening to you. I'm sorry that you believe this way. It derails his whole philosophy. He admitted it himself. Because that is to believe that somebody is capable of love and that you can actually feel these emotions of goodness. That's a huge problem. If your whole, the whole idea of being self, of being the greatest for yourself, of suffering is goodness, and suffering for suffering's sake is how you become the overmensch, and to live is to suffer, and then to overcome the suffering and to impose your will upon the other. To not live by the slave mentality of suffering for other people, but you must suffer for your own truth and come to that will to power through the suffering. One conversation with a sympathetic person derails the whole thing, he says. And that's, that's, it's just, I, I fluctuate between just being so angry at Nietzsche for what he's done to a generation of people, telling that there's no reason to live. There is no transcendent goodness. And just, I feel the most overwhelming sense of pity for him. Because he must have lived such a miserable life that he hated so much. That he created these books and these philosophies that try to excuse his pathetic behavior. He was, I mean, it's strong language, but he was a whelp. He was, he was a nobody. And he loathed it because he thought, he was. He was a smart guy. He was an intelligent man who asked questions but refused the answer when it was so obvious. His father was a pastor. He was in seminary schools. He had the answer, and he stared into the abyss for too long, and the abyss bit back at him. So, folks, don't stare into the abyss. Because, like I said, it has teeth, and it has a name. It's Lucifer, and he is the father of lies. If you have to ask a, a million Questions does not always equal a doubt. You can ask the questions. They're not, it's not wrong, it's not bad to question some of these things. But what is foolishness to do, what is unwise to do, is ignore the answer when we have it in the world around us. Solomon asked the questions, but he came to the realization when it came to him, when it was presented to him, that God has approved our works and we live and we suffer for God. I did the whole episode on the book of Job. The pursuit of happiness. You must suffer for it, but you don't ever suffer needlessly. We don't have to. We suffer for another. We suffer, we serve first the kingdom of God. And that's what Nietzsche got wrong. We do not serve ourselves. We serve others. And when we serve others, we become blessed and we get happiness. When we suffer for God, when we ask God and he responds to us, it is wise for us to listen to him. When we ask these questions, when we bring them before God, he will answer you. When we ask them into the abyss, he will also answer you. But he will lie to you because he's the father of lies. And so, folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode, the first episode of The Classic Life. We, we have posited... One of the big problems, we have looked and explored one of the big problems, nihilism. That's one of the problems, and we started answering the conclusion. We started answering the solution. Coming in the conclusion of this episode, we have come to the solution. That is to dwell on goodness, dwell on truth, and to dwell on God, on the transcendent. 
it's real, it's out there, and next time we'll explore more.